It's my privilege to bring the word to you this morning. Um, and as Matt shared last week, I'm preaching on one verse, Philippians 3, verse 3. And it's a power-packed verse. Don't, if you're worried that I'm not going to be able to get enough out of it, don't worry. It's more, can I finish in time to send you guys all home? So I'm going to kick off with a, a story just to tear down any walls. Um, we're talking about circumcision this morning. And uh, when I was at Selborne College, we um, played uh, tennis ball soccer every break time, a group of us, there were about 20 of us. And we loved it, you know, almost went to school for the tennis ball soccer and just waited in between uh, through all of the boring classes. And we kept coming up with creative ways to split up our teams, okay? So one day, I kid you not, we came up with the idea, tips versus snips. <laughs> and um, the snips won because, you know, God's all for circumcision. And uh, this morning, you see, I've hopefully torn down some walls. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul's going to bring forward in a far more serious manner um, this idea of circumcision. And it's on the screen for you. I'm going to read it for you now. One verse. Here we go. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul has just been speaking about rejoicing in Christ always. Uh, rejoicing God always, and then being watchful. That was Matt's sermon last week. Watch out, watch out for your joy, um, that you're guarding it, but also be watchful over the false gospels that are out there, the dogs that are out there to push Christ to the side and make something else the center. And uh, the people that were doing this to the Philippians and to the church at this time were called Judaizers, and they were Christians who... Uh, believed that it was Jesus and the physical circumcision. So they were teaching that everyone had to get circumcised. So these Gentiles were not circumcised, and Paul was not telling them to get circumcised. He was very careful to go, Jesus alone is enough to save you. I'm going to add nothing else to you. And then he would be followed by these other teachers coming in after him to correct him and say, if you want to just be sure... You need to be like us because circumcision is a really big deal. It's really important. And we're going to look at it today and see why that was such a, a tempting uh, trap uh, for those people. And, and many of the people that Paul was preaching to uh, were exchanging the grace that they'd received through Christ for the works of doing physical circumcision. And so circumcision is actually a problem word for Paul. It's caused him a lot of difficulty, and I find it very interesting that he uses it. Okay? It's caused him hassle after hassle after hassle. He's just spoken about the dogs who are preaching, get circumcised. And Paul now says, we are the circumcision. He's not afraid of the word. He uses the word. It's a gospel word. And I'm going to look at the history of that word, and we're going to see the progression and how we get here. And Paul's not willing to let go of the word for the sake of 
the ones who are lost and misusing it to drag people astray. So my question this morning, and the title of the sermon is, True Believers. So the, the Judaizers thought they were true believers, but they weren't. And Paul um, is speaking to the Philippians as true believers, and now he says, we are the circumcision. Some of your translations will say, the true circumcision. What is a true believer? And what is true circumcision? I mean, I started off with a silly story about circumcision. And I think for most of us, if we're men, your parents decided or they didn't. You know, that's as far as it goes. And um, where does it come from? Why does it even exist? And it starts in Genesis chapter 17. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and it's called the covenant of circumcision. And he says this to Abraham in 17 verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I just realized my phone's, which is my timekeeper, is down here, so to save you all from a three-hour sermon. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So covenant is an important word for God. It's a promise. And God doesn't break promises. Okay? God doesn't walk away from covenant. It's why he hates divorce. Okay? Marriage is a representation of the relationship between Jesus and the church. The, the, the real marriage is the bride, the church, and the bridegroom, Christ. And that can't be separated. It doesn't matter how much the the church messes up, Jesus is never going to walk away from his bride. And when marriages are able to, and I'm not putting a heavy on, I know many people uh, have suffered the brokenness of divorce, and it means you've been through a lot of pain. So I'm not trying to make you feel guilty when I say this. I'm just fighting for God's picture of covenant. When, uh, when marriages overcome great struggle, to stay together, it's a testimony to the world of what is true. That God will never leave his church. And covenant is a huge word. So when God says, I'm making a covenant with you, and this is a sign of the covenant, that's why the Judaizers' um, uh, teaching was so um, tricky. Because in Genesis, God says, this is a sign of the covenant between me and you, that you are circumcised. Any uncircumcised, in verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God took this thing seriously. This was far more important than a little tennis ball soccer match. If you weren't circumcised, you had broken covenant. You were out. And did God follow through? I'm about to read a verse of Scripture to you, and anyone who tells me the Bible's boring, I know you don't read it. Okay? Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 to 25. And I'm going to have it on the screen there, but I'm going to give you the context. Moses has been um, in the desert for 40 years. Okay? He killed someone in Egypt, he got found out, and he ran. And now he's married Zipporah, and he's lived on her farm with her dad. And God visits him in the burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to be the one to lead my people. 
to freedom. And this context here, this is really strange. You almost go, Woo! when you read, it doesn't make sense. It's almost like my kids were playing outside and the house burnt down. What? There's a lot of detail in between. How did the house burn down? Seb, stop leaving stuff out. Moses is not telling us exactly what happens over here because it goes, I think he's a bit ashamed. God says, come with me, let's go to uh, Pharaoh, and they are on the way from the farm to Pharaoh for Moses to be the man to lead God's people out of here. That's where we are in the story. And suddenly, Exodus 4, 24 to 25 says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord sought to kill him. And the first time I read that, I had to stop. God, you've just said, Moses, you the man. Moses, you're going to lead my people out of here. And we know he does, so we know what's coming. So in the middle of all of that, you can almost gloss over it. It says, at a lodging place along the way, the Lord sought to kill Moses. Hmm. And I hope you're asking why. Because I was. Gee. You know, that seemed a bit, you know, hey, you're my, you're my guy, you're on my team, let's go. Oh, actually, bang, let's kill you. And Moses doesn't give the detail except to say this part. Then Zipporah, notice it's Zipporah, not Moses, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What had gone wrong? Moses had not kept the covenant of circumcision with his children. These are grown children, a grown son who is uncircumcised. And I'm sure along the way, God's nudging him and going, um, if you're going to lead my people, you need to walk in my ways, cut off that foreskin, and Moses is playing the passive husband role here. Okay? Nope. Don't want to do that. And so God, in the seriousness of what this covenant is, because Moses won't obey, seeks to kill Moses. And the only thing that stops God from killing Moses is Zipporah, poor old Zipporah, has to take flint and chop her son. And she's so angry with the passivity of Moses that she then throws the foreskin at him. I hope you're feeling better about your marriage this morning, man. <laughs> I can't remember what Anita's thrown at me. I don't think there was much, but if there was anything, maybe like a plastic cup or something. But men sometimes irritate their wives to the point where wives are tempted to throw stuff. And you don't have to put your hand up. I'm sure some of you might have even done that. But... Here we've got, you know what this is? This is Moses sleeping on the couch for the next month. Okay? This isn't Zipporah's fault. She's not a, a Jew. It's not from the covenant that she's a part of. It's Moses that has to fulfill this covenant, and he doesn't have the um, initiative to even do the deed. And poor old Zipporah's got to chop her son and throw the foreskin at Moses' feet. And that's why I say, when you say the Bible's boring, I just don't think you're reading it properly. Okay? You've got to slow down a little bit and realize what's happening over here. This is very interesting stuff that's going on. And I don't know if Zipporah and Moses ever recovered from this experience. Because later in the story, 
um, she leaves with her child and goes back to her father while Moses is taking the Israelites uh, through the desert. The point being is this. God takes the covenant of circumcision very seriously. It must be done because it's a sign that you belong to me. Now, if we're just going to stop there and not read any more scripture, you would, should be asking, but then maybe aren't the Judaizers right, Mark, because they're just saying, do that thing, and that thing says that we're part of God's covenant, and you can see why this is so tricky if you don't know more scripture. Because this is not the final word on circumcision. We're only in Exodus. I've got three more scriptures for you. Two of them Old Testament. And I'm going to swap the slides around, Jane. I'm going to keep you on your toes. If you don't mind putting up Jeremiah first. Jeremiah 4.4. In Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet, God says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So already this thing's moved from a physical thing to the heart. God is saying here, and this is what's tough, he's telling them to do it. And I want to ask you this question. Can they do that? Can they circumcise their hearts? And I would say they can't. And they face the punishment for it. Jeremiah is a prophet that preached and no one listened. And while he was preaching, while he was the prophet over Israel, the great failure of Babylon coming in and destroying the temple and taking the Israelites happens on Jeremiah's watch. God tells the people, your hearts need to be circumcised. It's not just your flesh. That's not good enough. Circumcise yourselves. And they can't do it. And they don't change their hearts. Their hearts stay prideful. Their hearts stay um, stiff-necked towards God. And the judgment of the removal of Israel from Israel, the destruction of the temple, falls on Jeremiah in his time. But it is the first clue to what God is doing with circumcision. That it's not a physical thing. It's the heart. Jeremiah. But... At this point, you do it. You circumcise your heart. And they can't. But there was a prophetic word given before this that, again, people might have missed if they read the Bible too quickly. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. So in the law, in the Torah, this is what God says. And, and there's a slight difference to the Jeremiah one. That's why I'm putting the order the way I have. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Both verses speak about circumcising the heart. Jeremiah, the command is, circumcise your hearts. They didn't do it. They couldn't do it. But in Deuteronomy, there's a prophetic word saying, God will circumcise the heart. That's the difference. The hearts need to get circumcised. But if it's up to you, it's not going to get done. Only God can circumcise the heart. And he has decided to do it as a sign of his covenant to us 
so that we would have soft hearts, the pride would fall away, the stiff-neckedness would fall away, and we would love him with all our heart, with all our soul, that we may live. This is the only way to live. You have to have a circumcised heart. And this gets the theology um, plays out into Romans. Romans 2, 28 to 29. Where now, through Jesus and through the Spirit, we understand how this has happened. And Paul explains it like this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. When, when God told the, the Israelites to sacrifice animals, the animals were never going to be forgiveness for sin. God was training them to see the day the real sacrifice came. The only reason they ever, for thousands of years, killed those animals was because it was going to point to Christ. In the same way, why were the Israelites told to get circumcised physically for thousands of years? For one reason, to point to Christ. The moment that God comes through the preaching of the gospel and we are cut to the heart, as it is said in Acts chapter 2 where Peter preaches, and the gospel is being preached for the first time to the Israelites, and he says, um, and they say to him, what must we do? To, it says we were cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. The only reason circumcision exists at all is to point to the fact that God's people will be a people who are circumcised in heart. And it's something he does to us through the hearing of the gospel. Sitting in this room today, there are people who are circumcised in heart and people who are not. And the ones who belong to God are the ones who are circumcised in heart. Coming to church is not a sign of being circumcised in your heart. In the same way that getting your foreskin chopped off as a physical outward sign is not a sign that you are truly in covenant with God and a true believer, coming to church as a prop to kind of go, I've done well today or I've done well over the last year and I'm coming to church. Don't you see how that can be an outward sign we depend on? It's not enough. And that's why you might say, how can you say we're here today? When I ask people in my office, I won't name any of you, People want to get baptized or they want to um, become members. Or, and we start talking about the gospel. And I say, well, if you die tonight and, you know, you stand before the gates, what are you going to say? I often hear from people who come to our church regularly, I'm going to say I'm a good person. I'm going to say I'm better than most people. I'm going to say I went to church. I'm going to say I read my Bible. Do you see how we put ourselves at the center of what we are going to say? And our depending and our trust is on, still on what we have done. It's a sign that the heart has not been cut. Because you can't do anything else but find a place to depend on that's something to do with you. 
But the ones who have been cut to the heart by the gospel say, because it's to give God glory, and we're going to see that in the text here, my hope is in nothing else but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's all I depend on. I don't depend on being better than anyone else. I don't depend on going to church. I don't depend on any of my activities because my flesh fails. I can put no confidence in this flesh. The one who belongs to God has been cut to the heart by the preaching of the gospel. Those are the true circumcision. And that's why Paul can say to him, these guys coming behind me telling you you've got to add physical things to this thing. Nonsense. You are the true circumcision. You've been cut to the heart by the gospel. You belong to God. They do not. And now he's going to give three signs. So I hope you're sitting there going, have I been cut to the heart? How will I know? Paul gives you three signs that you've been cut to the heart in Philippians 3 verse 3. The first one is a sign of the true believer is they worship by the Spirit of God. A sign of a true believer is they worship by the Spirit of God. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. This is why I have to stress, coming to church and singing songs isn't true worship. That's just a physical thing that you can do. But those who have been cut to the heart by the gospel have received the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit lives in you and moves you to worship. You can't not worship. And worship is a much bigger word than what's happening on a Sunday morning in this room. It's by the Spirit, and the word is not even worship. It can be translated worship. It's also translated service whose service is by the Spirit of God. That's why this word's bigger than singing songs. So some of you sometimes say to me, I wish worship was louder. And some of you sometimes say to me, I wish worship was softer. Same service. Okay? So you can tell the difficulties. Right? And sometimes we have discussions over what real worship is, but we're often talking about what's happening in this room. And worship's much bigger than that. And yes, some people do worship like a gymnast, and some people worship with the uh, animation of concrete, you know. I sometimes wonder if the concrete will be more animated because God says the rocks will cry out, but you don't seem to want to. Okay? I get wanting to be in a service where during worship we are wholeheartedly going for it. I think the spirit alive in me pushes me towards that. But we're talking about something far bigger than what happens in a, in a time of singing songs. And by the way, if you watched the rugby yesterday, I only watched the first 10 minutes, but the most powerful moment for me happened in the first 10 minutes before the game started. When we were singing the national anthem, which, by the way, um, I don't think we pay enough attention to. Because at the advanced conference, the theme was Sikileli Africa. And they took us through this national anthem and how it's a worship song to praise God. We are singing a worship song written to glorify God and Jesus every time you say the national anthem. Isn't that a powerful thing? What a powerful thing to be in. Some nations sing about kings and queens, and we are singing about Jesus when we do our national anthem. 
And some of you, I hope you saw it as well, but the most powerful moment for me was the national anthem when they started showing South Africa singing and it got to Sia uh, Kulisi. And with everything in him, wholehearted, so much is his love and passion for our country. He is belting so loud, I can't hear the rest of the stadium. For South Africa, he's moved to sing with everything he's got. And our worship sometimes feels like we are worshiping among stones. And I think that should challenge us, because if the Spirit is alive in us, it moves us to worship. But worship is a much bigger thing than just singing songs. What do I mean by worship then? If it's service, then that means the Spirit is moving you in all spheres to everything you do. You're doing it for God. And you do it with that heart, that passion, that love. So that's why when we had Alan and Tinas up here, great examples of that, I'm challenging them, and it's in the, the membership kind of um, agreement, what we're agreeing to here. How are you going to love and serve others? That is worship. Church isn't just come to church and, and listen to a sermon and leave encouraged. Church has to be, how, Lord, do I love and serve these people you've placed me amongst? How do I worship you that way? How do I worship you by going out onto the streets? And, and you might say, evangelism is not my thing. You're still on the streets, whether you want to do evangelism or not. You're still out there in the workplace. And every time you talk about God at risk to yourself, at risk to your reputation, that is worship. The Spirit will move you to do those things if you have been circumcised in your heart. It's the first sign of those who truly believe. They are moved by the Spirit to worship on a far bigger level than just singing songs. I'm going to end with a story at the end that I hope is really going to move you on um, all three of these points, but particularly this one. True believers worship by the Spirit of God. If we're noticing the dryness in us, and it happens to all of us, so I'm not saying just because you felt dry, I loved what Charles shared this morning. I'm not saying you're not a true believer because you're, you're not feeling this um, unction from the Spirit to worship. We all drift, but you can't be satisfied in that place. The Spirit never gives up, by the way. So even though you might be dead as a doornail in your heart because of various things that have happened, the Spirit is called the hound of heaven. He never lets go and never gives up on you. So He is always urging and pushing. We need to have our hearts softened. We need to be cut again. And we need to say, Lord, come, as Charles reminded us this morning, come and fill me. Fill me up, Lord that I might worship you by your Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. This is, worship is not geographical. It's not happens, it doesn't happen in a place. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's not about a mountain. It's not about even the temple. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It happens everywhere you go when the spirit is alive in you. The second thing Paul says is true believers glory in Christ Jesus. That word glory, again, just like the worship word can mean service, and I think is quite a good translation because it pulls us out of this just on one geographical place, worship thinking. True believers glory in Christ Jesus, the definition here is boast. The word is boast. True believers boast in Christ Jesus. When we boast, we speak. We are moved to speak about this thing that we are so proud of. Grandparents cannot keep quiet about newborn grandchildren. Husbands, on the day of their wedding, can't stop talking about how beautiful their wife is. Boasting comes when we are proud and it's verbal and external. And true believers... Boast in Christ Jesus. And I worry when you don't talk about God. When you don't talk about Jesus, I, I worry about the state of your heart. Because the Spirit should be moving you to worship in all spheres. And then another outflow sign of that is, and you can tell with some people, and sometimes I'm in small group and I can just see, this one is in love with Jesus. It's coming through the way that they speak. It's coming through the way that they talk about him. They are glorifying him regularly at every opportunity. Charles has been through a lot. Every time I'm with Charles, he points to Jesus. Okay? Yes, he'll moan, have a little moan about his arm, and I don't blame him. But he finds the space to go, this is where, uh, what Jesus has done for me. He, he's my hope. He's where I put my trust. And I want to ask you, true believer, how are you doing in this area of boasting about Christ and what he's done for you? You do not need to be encouraged to talk about your grandchildren when your grandchildren are born. It just wells up out of you. You do not need to be encouraged to talk about your beautiful spouse, uh, especially in the honeymoon phase. Okay? Maybe later we need a bit more work to encourage us to remind ourselves to still speak encouragement to one another. But in the honeymoon phase, it flows. And always, because true believers have been cut to the heart and have the Spirit of God, there is this natural tendency to boast and talk about Jesus. Listen, you know where Paul gets this? Paul gets this from the Bible. Jeremiah. Paul also likes to steal. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight. For in these things I delight, declares 
the Lord. We are meant to be a people who are talking about Jesus and bringing him glory through the way that we talk about him. It's a second sign of a true believer. And then the last uh, sign from Paul. True believers put no confidence in the flesh. I worry when someone will speak to me and say, I know I'm not going to fall in the area of marital infidelity. That sounds like trusting in the flesh to me. And just because you've been strong so far doesn't mean you're going to continue to be strong. When I did my premarital counseling, I had an eater next to me, the guy who uh, did the teaching in the course, I've never forgotten it. Old man, 70 years old, from England. Um, been married uh, 50-ish years. Never committed infidelity and is in a marriage counselor, so he is constantly counseling weddings that have broken down because of affairs. So he lives it. He is in it. He sees the pain and the brokenness. And he himself said, it could happen to me today. He's never done it. But he says, it could happen to me today. He's not putting confidence in the flesh. Paul says that this flesh is um, sinful. This flesh is sinful that you, the, the Spirit is alive in you and you are a true believer. You still are wrestling with sinful flesh. And it will lie to you. It loves to put confidence on itself and let the pride run up and you've done well in this and you've done well in this and you're not going to mess up in this. How many times has someone said to me, I won't fall because of this, and then later it happens? And I want to warn you, I'm very careful um, with who I speak to when I'm alone because I want to guard my relationship with Anita. That marriage is so special to me, and I don't for one moment go, Mark, you've been married 13 years, you've had 365 times 13 successful days. That's a lot. You're probably going to be fine. No. I'm on the alert because I know that this flesh falls. It fails. And this is the exact opposite of what these Judaizers are doing. They are putting confidence in their flesh. They are putting confidence in their actions, in what they've achieved. They are boasting in their works. Do this thing. Look at us. We've done it. And look at how we follow so well the Jewish law. Their worship is centered on themselves. They don't realize the Spirit is not active in their lives, pushing them to worship Christ. They are not boasting in Christ. They've pushed Him to the side. We are in danger of those same issues, church. That's why Paul says, beware of the dogs. And that's why he reminds you this morning, you are true circumcision. Worship by the Spirit. Boast in Christ Jesus and don't put any confidence in the flesh. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I will not trust the sweetest frame, but only boast in Jesus' name. Powerful, powerful lyrics, I think, are built on this verse. And I want to close with a story. There's a man called John Harper. Anyone know him? John Harper? Good, so this will be fresh. John Harper was a preacher on the Titanic. He wasn't preaching on the Titanic. He was a preacher, and he was on the Titanic. He had a six-year-old daughter. This story strikes close to home. My daughter's sick at home. She's six. I'm not sure what was happening with the wife and other kids, but on that Titanic, it was John Harper and his six-year-old daughter. When the ship started going down, he took his six-year-old daughter and he placed her in a lifeboat. And he put his trust in Jesus because he walked away. And he immediately turned around and started shouting, all women, children, and unsaved in the lifeboat. He didn't want to take one seat of someone who had not yet given their life to Christ He was willing in that moment, his worship was to run through that ship shouting, get all women, children, and unsaved people into the lifeboats. He's left his six-year-old daughter on a lifeboat in Jesus' hands. And he starts preaching to everyone he can see, boasting about Jesus to everyone he can see. When the ship went down, he was on bobbing on a, a piece of debris. And there was another man on another piece. And the debris floated past each other. And he said to the man, are you saved? And the man said, no, I don't believe I am. And the waters took John away. Oh, sorry, before the waters took John away, he said, sometimes you only get one sentence. Yeah? So you might say, I only had one chance to say one thing to that person. Sometimes you only get one sentence. He said in his one sentence, this is a good sentence to memorize if you get it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the, wind, and the wave swept him away. And the person telling the story is the man on the other debris. He says, strange to say, the waves brought John Harper back one more time. And when John Harper came back the second time, he said, man, are you now saved? And the man said to him, I believe I am still not. And John Harper had one more sentence, one last chance. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then the man watched him go under. And he said, 
in that moment, I believed. And he shared this story at a church service. And he stood up in front of that whole church and he said, I am John Harper's last convert. And when I read that story, everything in me says, Lord, may I love you like that. May I be willing, if the moment's called for it, to be able to put Livy down and know you are good. You're going to take care of her. I don't believe for a moment that John Harper's... No, I, I, silly me, because I can't help but share. I shared the story at a supper. And there's Livy sitting there going, Dad, what about the six-year-old girl? And I said to Livy, don't worry. God takes care of the orphans. That girl, I don't know what happens to her because we don't know the rest of the story for her life, but I am convinced God takes care of her. And Lord, may I live my life for you. May I be cut to the heart in such a way that I worship you. John Harper is worshiping. I don't know if he was Baptist. I don't know if he worshiped like concrete or like a gymnast. But that is true worship. When you say, Lord, this is what matters. Nothing else matters. What matters is tonight, someone here might get saved, and I'm going to talk about you. I'm going to boast about you. I'm going to tell people about you. And, and God doesn't come through for John. He might have thought maybe there were people who got saved. The one guy got saved on the debris, the convert. John didn't. But he went out in a blaze of glory. And I don't know when my time comes. I don't know where I'll be. Sometimes I hope I'll be on a hospital bed kind of easing my way out, you know, not in too much pain with everyone around me. That's a nice picture. Sometimes I imagine myself on the Lesotho Mountains and I think, oh, Lord, if I can go home telling people about you, like John Harper, that is a way to go. And so, church, this morning I'm going to ask you to close your eyes as a closing prayer with you. It's been my prayer this whole week in preparation that the Lord would help me preach today in a way that you would be cut to the heart again. That if there is someone in the room here who has built their Christianity upon their performance, they're coming to church, how well they keep the rules compared to other people, that this morning they might hear John Harper's one sentence, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that that pride would just fall in your heart and you would realize at last that there's nothing you can do to make it right. The only thing you can do is accept what Jesus has done for you and say thank you. And then give your life to him. Live your life for him. Let him be king and ruler of your life.
So I'm going to put it to you the way it was put to me. There was a day when someone said to me, do you believe? And I put my hand up and I said, yes. And I was cut to the heart. And my life has been forever changed by Jesus. And those of us who know Jesus, we don't want any of you to leave today not having responded to him. It can happen off one sentence, one moment, one thought where you realize you need Jesus more than anything else. And you say, yes, that's me. So if there's someone in the room today, I want to pray for you. And I also want to speak to you after the service so that I can help you and encourage you. So if there's anyone who's responding to Jesus, you feel that you've been cut to the heart this morning. And I'm talking about first-time commitment here. So those of you that already trust in him, um, I'll get to you. Is there anyone in the room who wants to respond to Jesus? Just lift your hand and I'll know. And put it down, and I'm going to ask you to come up at the end so I can pray for you. I'm going to ask that those of you that believe pray with me now. Because God's working. Lord, I thank you for the people that lifted their hands up there and you alone know their hearts. But through the preaching of your word, you are able to cut the pride of man and all of the things we put our hope and our trust in fall away. And I want to pray for all of us in the room today, those that do believe in you and have believed in you for a long time, Lord. May they come away from the sermon today, cut again, reminded again what it is to truly believe in you. May they be filled with your spirit, Lord, and pushed on by your spirit to worship, worship in song, worship in action, worship in service, worship in every single aspect of their lives where you've placed them, May they respond to the work of the Spirit in their hearts, Lord. May the boasting of Jesus Christ come to our lips. May we talk boldly and freely of who he is and what he's done for us, to everyone and anyone who would hear. Our last convert, Lord, has not been reached. May we not be silent, Lord, about you. May we speak of you. In every moment, at every Bible study, in every church service, in every uh, staff meeting, in every supper time, in every space, Lord, may we boast about Jesus Christ. Lord, we so easily put confidence in our flesh. We so easily depend on what we can do and how we perform. Take that away from us today, Lord. May our hope be in nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Protect us from evil, Lord. May we not think we stand lest we fall. 
May we live by the Spirit, boast in Jesus, and walk humbly before our God. In Jesus' name, amen.